Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a recorded production called The Real Story of Christmas, written by W. Cleon Skousen and narrated by the famous Francis Urey. This was originally produced in the 1960s and for some time was presented at Temple Square in Salt Lake City. I hope you will enjoy this 30-minute presentation on The Real Story of Christmas. And I hope you will share this and other uplifting messages of Christ with family and friends, especially during this Christmas season. There never was a more exciting Christmas than the first one. Oddly enough, however, the complete historical account of that first Christmas is seldom told. There are forgotten chapters buried in scriptural records which the pageants at Christmas time fail to relate. Jesus was born in a conquered country. More than 60 years before his birth, the iron-shod wheels of Roman chariots had thundered through the streets of Jerusalem and Pompey had planted the Roman eagles on Mount Zion. Other Roman conquerors had followed, but in the end, Augustus Caesar placed in power a cruel and cunning Arab to rule the Jewish people. His name was Herod, Herod the Great. In the year of the Romans, 752, when Herod was past 60, the central portion of the new temple was practically completed. It was here, that the real story of Christmas begins. On a certain day, an ancient Levite priest came to the temple to preside at the altar. His name was Zacharias. Zacharias had come to the temple this day with a prayer which had been the burden of his soul for many years. He longed for a son. Although the time had long since passed when he could expect a son, nevertheless by habit, he continued to present his supplication to the Lord. It was the thought uppermost in his mind as he approached the altar of incense. Suddenly, Zacharias stopped. He was almost blinded as the dim half-light of the holy place was shattered by the brilliant appearance of a glorious being. An angel stood to the right of the altar surrounded by an intense heavenly light. In terror, Zacharias began to retreat, but the holy messenger spoke to him. Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. The humble Levite priest could scarcely believe his ears. The angel continued, He shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This was too much for Zacharias. Elizabeth have a son? <laughs> Impossible. She was too old. In this doubting spirit, he challenged the angel. Well, whereby shall I know this? I am an old man, and my wife is well stricken in years. In tones of solemn rebuke, the angel declared, 
I am Gabriel that stands in the presence of God and I am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. Behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak because thou believest not my words. Instantly the angel was gone. Zacharias turned to fulfill the rite of burning the incense. As the clouds of perfumed vapor ascended, the Levite priest walked out before the people. Why had he been so long? Zacharias tried to explain, but his tongue was speechless. Finally, with silent gestures, he made them understand he had seen a vision. One hundred miles north of Jerusalem lay Nazareth. Here lived a certain daughter of Israel who was to become one of the most famous women in the world. Her name was Miriam. Today we call her Mary, but this is merely the modern translation of her name as it has come down to us through the Greek. By right of birth, Miriam was a Jewish princess. She was a direct descendant of King David, she had become betrothed to a young man who was also of the royal Davidic line. His name was Joseph. It was probably in the month of August, and just six months after Gabriel appeared to Zacharias, that he also appeared to Mary in Nazareth. She was alone when the celestial vision opened before her. As with Zacharias, she was deeply frightened. The sudden brilliance of the heavenly messenger momentarily overwhelmed her, and even before she could speak, the salutation of the glorious Gabriel fell upon her ears. Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, Thou shalt conceive and bring forth a son. He shall be called Jesus, the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Mary could not comprehend. How shall this be? The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the Highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, that which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. This messenger from heaven, who called himself Gabriel, was none other than the prophet Noah. As Mary looked up into his brilliant countenance, she was beholding the unresurrected spirit of her own great patriarchal ancestor. When he had finished delivering his message, 
Gabriel confided to Mary that her aged cousin Elizabeth had also conceived, and that already she was in her sixth month. Then he departed. Left to herself, Mary treasured up the words of the angel in secret. Neither her parents nor even Joseph, whom she deeply loved, were informed. There was one person with whom she felt she might share her sacred knowledge. That was Elizabeth. Therefore, she made haste to go straightway and visit her. Some time prior to Mary's departure, the glory of God encompassed her. And for Mary, the miracle of new life began. When Mary arrived at her cousin's home, Elizabeth rose to greet her. And being moved by the Spirit of the Lord, Elizabeth exclaimed fervently, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this, that the mother of my Lord should come unto me? Realizing that Elizabeth already knew her great secret, Mary replied simply, my soul doth magnify the Lord. Mary stayed with Elizabeth to await the time when Elizabeth would be delivered of her child. And when her baby came, it was a male child, just as Gabriel had predicted. For Zacharias and Elizabeth, this baby was a triumphant blessing. Relatives, neighbors, and friends joined in their rejoicing, and all of them gathered to witness the naming of this wonderful infant born out of season. Elizabeth said the name of the child should be John. Indignant male relatives ordered the priest to name him after his father. Finally, when Elizabeth continued to object, an appeal was made to Zacharias. This was done by signs, for he was deaf as well as without speech. Zacharias motioned for a tablet, and when they obtained one, he wrote with the stencil, His name is John. Zacharias suddenly began to speak. For the first time in nearly a year, his tongue was loosed. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he exclaimed. Then gazing proudly on his infant son and being filled with the spirit of prophecy, Zacharias declared, Thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Of the child, the Savior himself would later say, Among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Mary returned to her home in Nazareth, and there Joseph anxiously awaited her. How long it was before he learned she was with child, we do not know. But when he did become aware of it, he was overwhelmed with grief. Under the Jewish law, a betrothal was almost as binding as marriage itself, and faithlessness was punishable by death. The only alternative was to put her away by a bill of public divorcement. Joseph was not bitter against Mary, only sorrowful. And therefore, 
he resolved to put her away privily. In the dark hours of the night, while Joseph feverishly pondered the sudden shipwreck of his prospective marriage, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream and said, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Joseph's marriage to Mary must have followed immediately, for the angel commanded it. And by the time of the taxing or census ordered by Caesar, Joseph and Mary are specifically referred to as husband and wife. It was early in April, in the year of the Romans, 753, that Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem. The exact date of these events was not certainly known until 1830, when the Lord affirmed that April 6th of that year marked 1,830 years since the Savior was born in the flesh. Prior to that time, no one knew the precise date. Authorities conceded, however, that December 25th was not celebrated as Christmas until the 4th century A.D., and it was established on that date simply for convenience. December 25th was chosen because at that time it was celebrated as a national holiday honoring the birth of the Roman god Saul. Since Bethlehem was originally the city of David, it was therefore the ancestral home of both Mary and Joseph. In other parts of the world, the Roman government had required each person to register for the taxation at his place of residence. In Palestine, however, the Jews were allowed to follow their ancient custom of returning to the region of their forefathers to be registered. For this reason, Mary and Joseph had come to Bethlehem. Being of modest circumstances, and because Mary's delicate condition required that they travel slowly, Joseph and Mary did not arrive in the vicinity of Bethlehem until long after that notable city had begun to overflow with large crowds from much less distant regions. But the city of David did not welcome them. As they threaded their way among the teeming crowds of Bethlehem, Joseph must have felt increasing apprehension. Where would they stay? Everywhere they met with the same rebuff. No room! Overwhelmed with anxiety, Joseph was finally forced to accept what he normally would have rejected with disgust, a stable. His soul must have been harrowed to the quick as he led his trembling young wife into this humble abode made for cattle. In the year of the Romans, 753, the Jewish nation never dreamed that this was the year of their salvation, the time when their long-awaited Messiah would be born. 
Near the outskirts of the city, certain angels prepared to make their presence known. Shepherds abiding in the fields and watching their flocks by night were chosen to be the recipients of a magnificent vision. It commenced the very moment Mary's precious infant was born. Immediately, the shepherds saw the veil of mortality sheared back and an angel stood before them with a glory which enveloped the scene in a radiant light. The shepherds thought they would be consumed and shrank back in fear. But the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For under you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. When the vision closed, the shepherds left immediately to seek out the location of the child lying in a manger. At their journey's end, they found the babe truly wrapped in swaddling clothes and cradled in a manger. But in addition to that, there was nothing unusual in the nativity scene to impress them with its power. They simply beheld a humble Galilean peasant and his wife with a newborn child. There were no halos of light about their persons, no visible cherubim. Nevertheless, with the glory of the angels still fresh in their minds, the shepherds looked upon the sleeping child with devotion and awe. Jehovah had entered mortality. When the shepherds finally left the stable, they ran swiftly to awaken their friends and neighbors. To all who would listen, they related the wonderful night vision and the things they had been told concerning this newborn child. But the people were not impressed. The scripture says they merely wondered. Nevertheless, this did not dampen the ardor of the shepherds. They returned to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard. Where were the wise men? Although Christmas pageants have it otherwise, there were no wise men present on the night of nativity. In fact, their homeland was far away to the east. During the early hours of this first Christmas morning, they were in their own country rejoicing at the sudden appearance of a great new star in the heavens. The prophets had said this star was the sign by which they would know that the Savior had been born. Therefore, the wise men promptly prepared to depart for the land of Palestine. The scripture is plain, that it was weeks or perhaps even months before the wise men arrived in Bethlehem. Meanwhile, Mary and Joseph prepared to fulfill the laws and ordinances prescribed for a newborn child. When the baby was eight days old, he was taken to the priest for naming. The name which they gave him was Joshua, this was a common name among the Jews, but it was the name the angel had designated. 
In later life, the people called him Joshua of Nazareth to distinguish him from all other men bearing the same name. Today we call him Jesus. But Jesus is simply the modified Greek equivalent for the name Joshua. The name means Jehovah is our salvation. Following this, Mary waited and rested for 32 days until the prescribed period of purification was accomplished. Then Joseph and Mary made the six-mile journey into Jerusalem to present Jesus in the temple. Dedicating this firstborn son to the service of God was one of the requirements of the law of Moses. It was some time after this that wise men came to Jerusalem seeking the newborn king of the Jews. Being without guile and innocent of the state of affairs in this part of the world, they went naively to Herod, thinking he would be informed of the identity and whereabouts of the new king. But Herod was greatly disturbed by their words. Hurriedly, Herod conferred with the priests and learned scribes. Where did tradition and prophecy say their king would be born? In Bethlehem, the city of David, they said. Frantically, Herod conjured up a scheme. Surely he must not stand by after all he had done, even to the killing of his own wife and children, and allow his throne to be snatched away by some nefarious pretender whom the superstitious populace might raise up to claim as the long-awaited Messiah or divine king. In this spirit of desperate hatred, he plotted murder for the child, whoever he was. Calling the wise men to him privily, he extracted from them the precise date when the great new star had first been seen in their own country. When they had told him, Herod made them promise to try and find the child and then inform him, so that he might come and worship the new king also. The wise men consented and departed. Speedily and at night they made their way to Bethlehem. En route, they rejoiced to behold once again the same brilliant star which they had previously seen in their own country, marking the date of the Savior's birth. They seemed to be led to the place where he was, but it did not turn out to be a stable. Joseph and Mary had long since found better accommodations. Matthew says, the wise men went into the house, and there they knelt before the child and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Later, when the time came for the wise men to depart, the angel of the Lord appeared to them in a dream and told them not to go back to Herod, but to return to the east by a separate way. This they did. Out of the unknown they came. Into the unknown they departed. We know nothing more about them, neither their names, their number, nor their nationality. Meanwhile, Herod impatiently awaited the return of the Magi, but when all hope was exhausted, he lashed out commands to his servile mercenaries to sweep down on Bethlehem and massacre every child under two years of age. As the soldiers hastened to obey, they violently perpetrated one of the most horrible crimes ever inflicted upon a helpless community. 
but Jesus was not there. Scarcely had the wise men departed for the east before an angel warned Joseph to take Mary and Jesus into Egypt. There they waited safely while the lethal hatred of Herod robbed the weeping mothers in Bethlehem of all their youngest children. But even as Herod ordered this terrible slaughter of the innocents, the grim reaper of retribution reached out to snatch his own life away. At the very moment when he would have sold his soul to keep his throne, Herod found himself dying of a most loathsome disease. His last few days were spent in the greatest agony. Death was finally a welcome release to Herod's fevered and tortured body. For the people, his passing was a blessing, and they celebrated with a joyous festival. Down along the banks of the tropical Nile, Joseph and Mary waited with the infant Jesus. Then, even before messengers could bring word to the general populace, Joseph was told by the angel that Herod was dead. Immediately, they prepared to return to their homeland. Apparently, Joseph and Mary had hoped to live permanently in Bethlehem. But as their little caravan neared the region, they learned that Herod's cruel son, Archelaus, ruled this part of the kingdom. Tired as they were, they continued their journey and passed on up into the hills of Galilee, finally arriving in Nazareth. There they resolved to make their home. In all these circumstances, three great prophecies were literally fulfilled that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, that he would come up out of Egypt, and finally that he would be called a native of Nazareth. As the years passed by, the scripture says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Gradually, he learned his true identity. He was taught by ministering angels at the age of 33, he was finally prepared to ascend the heights of the mortal mission to which he was born. At the last moment, he could have turned back, but he did not. He passed beneath all things that he might save all things, the human race, the earth, and all the life that ever embellished it. The purpose of the Savior's mission was broader than many have supposed. Here then, we conclude the known history of Christmas. All else that is added is man's homemade invention. The pleasant lighted tree comes down to us from the days of heathen Rome. The holly wreaths and mistletoe from the ancient mystic druids. The exciting visit of Saint Nicholas from fourth century Christian tradition. And the happy jolly Santa Claus from pure modern imagination. But with it all, the most important thing still survives. The spirit of peace on earth goodwill toward men. 
Never at any other season does peace come closer to a universal reality than at Christmas time. More friends are remembered and more enemies forgiven than at any other time of the year. It is but a shadow of things to come. Not far from us, and surrounded by his legions of heavenly hosts, this same Jesus works today toward the time when he will come back to the earth. It will be a glorious day, perhaps much nearer than we think. And when it arrives, men will call it the millennium, a Christmas season of peace on earth that will last a thousand years. <laughs>